host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia Ocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Just came back from Toronto for the weekend, was there with the Connecticut Whale. We got the split against the Toronto Six, so obviously would have liked to get two wins, but uh, we lost the first one 7-4, made some good adjustments, then took the second one 4-1. So lots of positives there, and uh, maybe uh, there will be a lot for us to talk about from uh, the bench perspective. Yeah, yeah, we'll save that uh, for a bit here. We're going to do listener uh listener questions a mailbag here and we got a lot of good stuff and a lot of really thought-provoking stuff so we're going to try to get through as much of it as we can all right let's let's get going here sure so tyler blazinski asks are the devils running someone or are the devils ruining someone like alex holtz by not giving him assignments with top line players and then sitting him for weeks on end isn't it better for him to be in the ahl playing regularly in, in utica I thought this was an interesting question. We could talk specifically about Holtz and the Devils, but also take a step back and view it through a kind of like bigger picture lens of just like ideal development paths and routes and how you want to be um, trying to get the most out of your young players in these key developmental years where they could kind of, they're at a crossroads where they could either become an impact player or kind of change their game into becoming sort of a utility role player or just totally flame out and be playing in Europe in, in a couple of years time. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not super familiar with Holtz's situation in particular. I I mean, I you know I I've seen him play, and I know that he he's a goal scorer. Um, you know, certainly more of a shooter than a passer or, or a defensive player. And you know what? Like every path is unique. I I think certain players certainly uh, would do better kind of getting opportunities right away. Like you know, the the obvious example is. You know, Jack Hughes got tons of minutes right away. He struggled for a bit, and and now he's a dominant player, right? But but I think in in the Devils situation, like they're in a in a very different place now than when Jack Hughes was a rookie. I mean, the Devils now they're a win now team. Their their job is to get the best roster on the ice every given night. So so I can see how maybe you know having Holtz in the top six on the power play, it, it's kind of it runs counter to where where the team is at right now. Uh, and certainly I think that's part of the challenge where if your NHL team is, is very good, it's difficult to incorporate new players because you're basically your, your number one priority as, as a coaching staff is to put the best, most reliable players on the ice. And then, uh, you know, if you have a young player who's kind of still figuring it out there, there's a lot less opportunities for, for them to, you know, have this, uh, trial and error process. Well, here are the specifics of the situation. So he's appeared in 18 of the team's 46 games. He's been a healthy scratch in seven of their past 10 games, including the last six in a row. When he has played, he's averaging around 10 minutes per game, and his most common 5-1-5 line mates are Sharon Govich, Boquist, McLeod, and Wood. So certainly, um, you know, more bottom six oriented or maybe even bottom line oriented. I think there's a couple things at play here, right? Like, in general... I'm very against using young players in the way that they have used Holtz primarily this season where it's really difficult to establish comfort, play with rhythm. If you're a young skilled player who has become accustomed to being the best player on their team at every level along the way and is used to being used in those high leverage situations where they get to play with a puck and then all of a sudden you come to the NHL, you're playing with Miles Wood and 
what's probably going to be kind of like a crash and bang line where you're not expected to do too much. You you dump the puck in, you you go after it, you throw a couple of hits, and you get off the ice and let Jack Hughes and Jesper Bratt play with the puck. And and I, I don't I understand the Devils are a really good team this season and they're deep, right? They have a lot of players, and so it's a unique circumstance where they got really good really quickly too. Like you say, it's different than when Jack Hughes is a rookie. It's a different situation for them than last season, where they they probably if they weren't, um, you know, they last year they didn't want to play him in the NHL because they didn't want to burn a year of his entry level deal and retained an extra season of it, and that provides them certainly with more flexibility moving forward. But you know, he only plays nine games in the NHL last year, spends the majority of it in the AHL, does really well, scores a lot of goals, and now he's kind of stuck in in the in between. And I'm not sure that sending him down to Utica would necessarily be the best for develop, his development either. Yeah, and and I think it's it's a spot where I think every young player has to work through at a certain point where either you're struggling in the AHL as a as a rookie pro or you kind of get stuck as a quad A player for a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm looking at Holtz's stats last year in, in Utica. He had uh, 51 points in 52 games. So I would argue that he is basically too good for the AHL already. There, there's maybe not a whole lot uh, for him to prove, at least from an offensive perspective. You know, maybe there's there's other things that he can certainly work on in the AHL. And I think the the inside perspective that lots of fans tend to miss out on is how much money does an ELC player make in the AHL? Yeah, huh, and how much yeah. and how much does that player make in, in the NHL? Right. It, it's a it's a factor of ten essentially. Well, not only not only that, I think something, that, and this is impossible to quantify, really. But I, I would, I would argue it is a factor. In general, you want him playing games, but I think being around the NHL team has its benefits too that are a bit more low key, right? But you get them around your coaching staff, around your training staff. You get him practicing with the team. You get him acclimating to being in the NHL. You get him, you know, the best, the best equipment, the best everything that they could possibly provide. I think the gap between what you get in the AHL and what you get in the NHL in that regard and on a day-to-day basis is also pretty wide. And so, yeah, he's not playing on the ice and he's not getting those game reps and that is unfortunate. But I think there is something to be said for for being around the NHL team and, and getting to make the use of, of all of those perks as opposed to, you know, riding the bus in the AHL and, and, and doing what he was doing last year. And, and listen, he turned 21 yesterday, so he's still incredibly young and he's got two years left of his on his ELC after this one. But this is his fifth pro year playing pro hockey, right? Like he was drafted out of the SHL. Like he's been playing pro hockey and scoring goals in in pro leagues for a long time now. So this isn't necessarily the type of thing where he's coming from major junior and you're like, all right, well, let's get him some reps playing professional hockey in the AHL because he's not used to it. Like he's already kind of got that under his belt, I think. Yeah. So the the fact that he's not playing every game and not playing a lot when he does get in the lineup, I think obviously there's a lot of hang ringing going on if you're a fan, but you know, as I mentioned, the the whole you know money and logistics and, and quality of uh, you know the NHL experience, uh, and also the other part is you know when you're at his age, you don't need to be playing 82 games or 72 games a season, right? Like maybe you know the Devils do work him into a lineup. He ends the season playing. I don't know, having played 40 NHL games, like that, that's fine. Like I think he'll figure it out. Um, and, 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 you know, when he's going to be averaging, you know, 20, 25, 30 goals in the coming years, I think that this will be uh, some that maybe fans would have already forgotten about. Wow. 
Um, I have, my guess would be he's going to get a lot of opportunities to play down the stretch for the San Jose Sharks after he has traded for for Timo Meyer. I think he's going to get a lot of. Uh, it's going to be a different environment in terms of uh, roadblocks for playing time for him. So, um, well, well, we'll see how that shakes out, bro. But that's good. Okay, so we're we're done with the whole question. Uh, let's bun, let's jump to Jeff Arvin asks. This is an interesting thought exercise. In an ideal world where all four lines and all three defense pairs are league average, so league average first line, league average second line, so on and so forth, how much time on ice does each set get? We've been seeing a skew towards top players getting heavy ice time recently, and I can't imagine it's good for their long-term performance. I'm curious for your take on this in terms of deployment usage. Um, you know, clearly the calculus changes depending on your situation in terms of how much the game matters and also particularly when you come to the postseason. But let's say, like, as just in general, rule of thumb over an 82-game regular season. Again, like, this is one of those things where it's so much... uh, You're depending so much on who you've got. You know, are these... Well, no, they're league average guys. Like, they're a league average first liner, league average first pair defenseman. Yeah, but, like, do, do you mean, like, average in every way? Because, you know, certainly... On certain teams, you'll get like fourth line guys who are more, you know, pure offense guys, or fourth line guys who are pure defense. Guys. But anyway, so so let's just say that they're average in every way, right? Yeah. Um, the difference uh, again, like I I don't have a, a neat answer for this because it, it'll depend on on the score state. It'll depend on whether the game's a lot of is happening at five on five or or on special teams, right? Like okay, so just to give you an example, so. When when I'm on the bench, I see how 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 this thing actually happens, right? Basically, your best players throughout a period would get anywhere between three and maybe six more shifts than than your 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 third or your your fourth line players. Like it's not that many if you think about it, because you know in there you'll get a couple of power play shifts, couple of PK shifts, and then one opportunity where you can put your best players on the ice is after a commercial break, right? Like if you're a coach, coaching at a high level who pays attention, as as soon as there's a commercial break, you know, the ice gets cleaned, you have like a four or five minute breather. It just makes total sense for you to throw, you know, either your first or your second line or your top D pair back out there again. Like if I see a coach putting out, you know, their fourth line or continue with the rotation after a commercial break, you know, either their top guys are tired or girls are tired, or they're just not really paying attention. Like those are good situations for you to give your your top players an extra shift without necessarily burning them out. So again, it's not so much the pure minutes; it's how they're distributed. So, um, you know, on Sunday uh, against Toronto, uh, so Britt Howard is uh, the Toronto Six is leading scorer. She leads the league in goals, and down the stretch, they were playing her every second shift, and you can see her energy level going down, down, and down. Right, so. You know, overall, in the entire game, she might have played, I don't know, you know, 18, 19 minutes. But it's the fact that in the third period, while they were chasing the game, she could hardly get a breather. Like, those are the sort of situations that if you're doing this too many times over the course of the season, that really wears down your top players. But, you know, if if you have control of the game and you're using the, the TV timeouts correctly and, you know, you're using, let's say, your special teams wisely... Uh, you, you can play your top players quite a bit and not burn them out, but but then you look at the NHL. Like if when you play 82 games in a season, everybody gets kind of worn down, which is why you know going back to the Holtz question, like maybe the Devils 
they start feeling good about where they are in the standings and they start working different players into the lineup. Um, so, so that might be a way for them to give their top players a rest. Yes. Yeah. I think the raw minutes aren't as big of a deal as, um, as you mentioned, how it's distributed. Also, just like finding ways to for the coaching staff to manufacture like additional opportunities in high leverage scoring situations for the top players, right? So, I think like an example of that is a, a big point of contention for me is teams that split their power play usage pretty much down the middle, fifty fifty. They give their first pair for our first unit the first minute. Puck gets cleared. All right, you're off the ice. We're bringing on the next five guys and. There's certain situations, I guess, where if you don't have top-end players, you might have two equal combinations. Obviously, that would signal a pretty big concern moving forward about the fact that you can't identify your five most skilled players or guys most likely to score with an extra man. But I, I think for most teams, at least a minute and a half, assuming that they've been able to rest prior to that power play shift, I think it, but that should be the split. I think the other thing to consider for me that teams don't utilize nearly enough is on offensive zone draws putting your two best defensemen together or i guess if if they're you know your two best offensive defensemen in particular and kind of getting away from the structure of having three set pairings and okay we're gonna we're gonna bring up our top pair here for the offensive zone draw but your right shot defenseman there is you know whatever generic defensive defenseman that isn't going to likely be a threat out there like i love when teams take advantage of those opportunities to get their best players out on the ice because if you win the draw, you get established position, you're more likely to score, even if it is at even strength. So so let me just add some more nuance to, to this discussion, because certainly if you have an ozone face-off, the, this is a, a high-leverage situation with which to create a chance, right? Yep. But what, for, from from my experience, like the coaches that, that I've worked with, it's always a balance between optimizing this next shift and kind of finding a flow and sort of a, a consistent and predictable uh, process throughout the game. So let's say that, you know, we have an ozone face-off, we go away from our usual rotation and we put our two best offensive Ds out there, right? Um, in the best case, you know, we win the face-off, we control the play, we we get a set play going or we find a good shot, you know, we create some chances, we score, right? In the worst case, uh, if you lose that draw and maybe the other team is pushing the pace and they're looking to stretch the ice, maybe these two players are not used to playing with each other. Maybe it's two lefties or two righties. Um, you know, like for me, like so much of playing good transition defense is knowing your partner and trusting your partner and having a sense of what they can and can't do. So, you know, certainly from optimizing offense, I think like you're, there's something to it, but overall, like I'm kind of cautious about mixing things up too much just because you know, about half the time, or even slightly more than half the time, you lose that draw, and then all of a sudden you're you, you got to defend speed. So, and, and and that's the first part. The second part is okay. Well, you've mixed up your pairings. Now, how many shifts? How many rotations does it take for you to get back to what you're comfortable with in terms of rolling your pairs? Right. It might take you, you know, two shifts or three shifts even to get back to you know your your quote unquote usual D pairs. So from a game management point of view, you're looking to maybe, sometimes you do leave some value on the table, but you're looking to make life as simple for for yourself as a coach, but also for your players as well. You don't want them second guessing too much. Okay, like who am I even playing with next shift? That was such a coach answer, Jack. My goodness.
Yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. It's certainly a situation. I'm not saying like, all right, in in a random January game for five minutes into the first period, you're you're all of a sudden pressing that that aggressively. So I think in, in the playoffs in particular, though, in, in close games, I think I think leaving value on the table in that regard is not something I'm okay with. Uh, just because I do, I, I think the value in creating a positive shift right off the bat, even if it doesn't lead to a goal, let's say you draw a penalty or you just keep them pinned in their own zone for a minute and a half and all of a sudden they're incredibly tired, they're struggling to get off the ice, it's the third period of a, of a playoff game, that trickle-down effect is is something that is a bit tougher to quantify, but I think is a, is a real thing and incredibly valuable to your team's outlook for the rest of the game. So let's, let, let's go to the next question from Daniel G here because it kind of ties into that idea. In, in, a, in a strange roundabout way, we'll get there, I'll explain it in a second, but the question is, should the goalie playing the puck up the ice for a stretch pass be a legitimate set play? Obviously, it's most likely used on a power play, but could it be used instead of or in addition to the draw pass to get the puck up the ice? Um, I, I'm very curious for your take on this. I should know that Daniel G's uh, username on Twitter is Sardonic Leafs fan, and so I'm sure it's fresh on his mind seeing what Ilya Samsonov did last night against the Islanders where... On the power play, he goes kind of behind the net to play the puck, and it looks like he's going to do sort of a standard, leave it for his defenseman or whatever, and all of a sudden he whips around, fires a bullet up the ice, and William Nylander, who springs John Tavares, I believe, and they get an easy goal from it because the Islanders weren't set and weren't expecting it. I'm curious for your take on the kind of like the legitimacy of using that as a set player in your arsenal. Obviously, it depends on what kind of a puck handler your your goalie is and whether he's capable of making that play regularly, but uh, what do you think about that? So I, I do like it on power play for the reasons, I think, uh, that, that prompted the question. Uh, on the power play, there's more space, obviously. Um, but also, when the other team sends it down the ice toward the goalie, generally they're going to offer a change. And then that's a good opportunity for the for the team, the team with, with the 5-on-4, to have a guy anchor at the far blue line and then for the goalie to send it. I actually had this conversation with Kyle Dubas a few years ago when I was working in Toronto, and, and he's very pro-goalie playing the puck, at least when we had this conversation. And my argument against it at 5-on-5 five five is, you know, anybody who's actually tallies some stats about goalie touches at 5-on-5 five five will, will notice that goalies turn the puck over anywhere between, you know, a quarter and a third of their touches. That's just an unbelievably high percentage considering that defensemen on these own retrievals they'll turn it over anywhere between, you know, one out of 10 or maybe one out of five in the worst case, right? Um, so for me, that that's just, the numbers don't really make sense. And uh, and that's for five on five, but certainly five on four, when you have um, more space on the ice, when your opponents are more conservative or, you know, even on survival mode, I think it's very much a viable play. Well, and also out of every one of those turnovers, the percentage of them that is like a complete back-breaking, soul-crushing, inevitable goal is also much higher than when a defenseman turns it over because your goalie's generally quite literally out of position is scrambling, is like running back and diving back to try and save an ensuing shot and it leaves you very vulnerable. So I uh, I agree with you there. That's a that's a bad take by a listener of the podcast, Kyle Dubas. I, I'm generally, like people that listen to this show know I'm, I'm very fervently against goalies doing any sort of extracurriculars in terms of playing the puck other than if it's a situation where they can kind of stop a rim around the boards and draw, literally just leave it in set position for their defenseman and then get back in net. I don't want them playing the puck. I think the value of 
a stretch pass from a goalie at five on five is incredibly overrated. You can have 10 of them successful. And if it leads to one really unsuccessful one, it completely drowns out the rest. On the power play, it is a different calculus. Certainly you have more space. And I actually like it there because for the reason you mentioned, I really hate when teams let the opposition off the hook in terms of you've got tired guys out there. They're desperately looking to get off the ice and you just sort of reset and hang hang around in your own zone and wait for them to do so. And that that applies to 5-on-5 five five as well. So not necessarily goalies playing the puck, but I love it when the other team clears it at 5-on-5. Five five. They're trying to get off the ice. You immediately regroup and you push the pace back up the ice with your defenseman. And that's what a team like the Avalanche does better than anyone and, and they do it to great effect. So it kind of applies to that in this instance. But yeah, I think it's more of a more of a power play option than uh, than even strength for sure. So uh, I'll, I'll just add a final uh, addendum to, to my point, which is if a day comes where there's a cataclysmic rule change where, you know, goalie pads and goalie sticks and goalie, you know, upper body equipment gets shrunk to look like more like a player's equipment, I think a lot of these goalies can actually make plays, but it's just it, it, the equipment's too big and, and they're not able to actually beat anybody or you know, like the, the goalie stick is just not made to handle the puck with. So if a day comes where goalie equipment gets so heavily legislated that goalies end up looking more like players, maybe you can revisit this conversation. Yeah. Okay. We have time for one more question here before we go to break. And instead of doing a listener one, this is a good opportunity for us to talk about your experience um, doing the PHF games. I know you wanted to talk a bit about the game, game day routine. And also you mentioned the adjustments that led to your, uh, to your second victory, tell me a little bit about that and kind of what goes into um, making those adjustments in between games. So, you know, most of my my job now when I work with players or when I work with both teams, it's about, you know, staying at home, cutting some video, tracking some stats, and then, you know, sending whether it's a pre-scout or post-game review. So once in a while, it's nice for me to actually go into the field and stand on the bench and, and see the game at ice level. Um, I think it's a good reality check or, or a good wake-up call for me. And the, the thing that, that we did uh, last weekend that was a little bit different was um, because we were three coaches on the bench and, you know, unlike the NHL, let's say we don't have like mid-game video, like we're not able to look at clips. So so I did something that I used to do as a video coach, which is I started tracking stats actually while standing on the bench. and. Uh, the, the one thing that I wanted to focus on is to, just to track a couple of really simple stats, but that were really at the heart of the tactical battle between uh, us and Toronto. And Toronto, so the, the particularity of the six is that they're the only team in the PHF that plays on international sized ice at home. So they play at York University and um, uh, and um, they uh, so, so the ice is bigger and they're very much uh, very difficult to contain because they're such a fast team. They play a little bit like the way Vegas plays. You know, the, the, the fours are very aggressively stretching up ice. They got some good high-end talent. So I picked a couple of stats going, going to the weekend that, that I thought would be a good reflection of, you know, kind of the, the, of the, t- the, the way that the game is going. And during what is commercial breaks between periods, actually, uh, Colton War, who's our head coach, you would check in with me and ask me, okay, like, how are we doing on this? Or what are some trends? And I thought it was a really great talking point for us in the absence of video to actually review how the game is going beyond just, you know, shots or, you know, the, the, the score. Can you give us a specific example of one of those trends? 
so I mean, it, it, it's nothing really secret, you know. What's the understanding? No, it's it, absolutely not. So it was just a matter of tracking five on five controlled entries for and against, and five on five shots for and against, and it, it gave us a a good big picture look at okay, well, uh, you know, they they made a good start because they were able to get let's say five controlled entries in the first four minutes, get some shots off of that us on the back foot but all of a sudden you know once we started getting our possession game going and getting into kind of our, our half ice offense which is you know pinning them in their zone all of a sudden we're getting a ton of these re-entry opportunities and we're basically able to catch them let's say after they flip the puck out of their zone catch them on the re-entry then create kind of these half ice rushes that uh ultimately i think in, in the first game we went away from that a little bit we we got caught w- with uh, you know, on the wrong side of the puck a few times, but then on the set in the second game, I think we did a really good job of following through and, and playing the whole 60 minutes in that way. I love it. All right, Jack, we're going to take our break here. And then when we come back, we'll keep doing listener questions. We're doing the mailbag with Jack Holland today. You are listening to the hockey PDO cast streaming on the sports Night radio network. Cast here with Jack Hahn. Jack, let's keep going with the listener questions. Ty Smith here asks, does the one three one power play work or is overload slash umbrella more effective? Well, well, I think the jury's out and, you know, no matter who you ask, power play scoring has been going up in lockstep with the one three one taking over as the, the preeminent power play structure in the NHL. So, uh, I think I've written about it. I've, I've talked about it elsewhere, but geometrically, it is simply the best way to create high-quality chances either in the slot or on a seam one-timer. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's going to disappear anytime soon. Um, that being said, uh, there is certainly value in being unpredictable, and, and you'll see teams set up in a one-three-one, but then rotate uh, into uh, something that looks like an overload or something that looks like. Uh, you know, a, a two-one-two or or something of, of that nature. So uh, certainly, I think there, there's a lot of value in, in building a one-three-one with you know players of the correct handedness who can facilitate all these quick set plays that we know work. Um, but then after that, it's a matter of also finding some values around the margins with your your other kind of rotations or plays off the rush or any kind of miscellaneous uh, you know goals that can make the difference. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that it's this the the answer to this question is entirely dependent on whether you have talent? <laughs> like, I, I think like certainly there's ways to if you you can have good players and if you don't put them in a position to succeed, you're not going to get optimal results. And if you have conversely, if you have really good players, whatever you do with them, they they'll find a way to make it work eventually. But I think like especially on the power play, just having the players who you can run the power play through effectively in the modern game off that half wall is is really all that matters. Like, if you don't have that, I think it's really tough to fake it in today's NHL. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the players are all so good that you know, the, the, the difference between, let's say, uh, a McDavid and Dreisaito unit versus, I don't know what the worst first, first power play unit league is, but the difference is not that big. It's just 
how quickly you're going to be able to find those set plays or conversely, you know, win a corner battle and then just, uh, you know, sort of improvise and find something. And again, like one of the litmus tests for me uh, when it comes to, you know, knowing whether a player is ready or not to, to be on a top power play unit, it's not about their shooting. It's not even about their their stick handling or their passing. It's their ability to receive hard passes and not bobble the puck. Right, because if you have five guys that can zip the puck around, that can you know find each other, but also just settle the puck down and then make a play off that, it creates so much more tempo and so much more threat to the net that you're able to overwhelm the other team with your execution. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to string three, four, five passes together and there's one bobble, you got to start over. Or worst case, you turn the puck over and now for the next thirty seconds, you're basically just wasting your time. Which is what the Oilers do remarkably well. Like when you watch them, when they start cooking on the power play, the number of like just quick one touches that are perfectly handled and executed, going from point A to point B to point C, is is remarkable. And what I what I think about is so I was um I was talking about this yesterday. I went to the Friday game in the press box, sat and watched the Avalanche versus the Canucks, and the Canucks power play has really been struggling. I believe they're still for the season like eleventh or something in terms of goals per hour generated. They were much higher earlier. They, they've, they've, like in every area, pretty much, um, you know, struggled and and been dragging their feet there. And it was startling to see, basically, if you're the opposing penalty kill and you just sit on that crossing pass that everyone tries to make, if you don't have other options to take advantage of, like if they're blocking off that middle and you can't then on the same side do some sort of action, whether it's passing it down to the goal line and then quickly getting it into the bumper. We're, we're going straight from the flank to the bumper. If you don't have some sort of intermediate play, like they just become completely discombobulated. It's like, all right, we're going to keep trying. It's going to keep being intercepted. And then eventually you just don't know what to do. And it just, you, you may as well not be on the power play because it's that ineffectual. Yeah. So the the one thing that, that Edmonton does really well, and, and I forgot, and I forget whether we talked about this early in the season, but they sometimes they'll have McDavid and Drysaddle right next to each other. So it, if you kind of take that seam pass uh, away from your top players, you actually see them problem solve in small areas. And and I kind of wonder why more teams don't do that because even with the teams that I work with, like once in a while we'll score a goal off of kind of a like a strong side play with two players just doing a quick give and go. Um, so maybe kind of after you have your one through on down pat there, there are ways to work in a couple of these quick uh sort of whether it's half wall to goal line and then back into the middle or or something along those lines like the oilers uh again it's i think it's mostly a mcdavid and dry saddle driven thing with uh nuge helping out once in a while but uh really a nice recipe for just creating some more uh unpredictability well also playing to their strengths like the amount of movement like the amount of ground that McDavid covers on a two-minute power play is remarkable because like you'll see him, he'll like literally circle around, go around behind the net, come back out, pop out somewhere, come to the top of the zone, and just like keep moving. Like he's not just standing in his assigned position. You're right. Like if if the opposing penalty kill is sitting on one thing, all right. Well, then we've got two or three other options in our back pocket that we can utilize without just completely self-destructing. And so it's cool to see. And, and but ultimately, I think that's. That's a Connor McDavid thing. They have Connor McDavid and other teams don't, so he's able to, to kind of break the structure that way, whereas other players probably just aren't. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's it on power. Do you have any other thoughts on the power play or do you want to move on? Uh, no, let's move on. Yeah. All right, here's a question for you. So Johnny Joestar asks, and I, I don't know why he's including uh, injuries here, but he says, what can a player do to overcome injury and significant time missed during key developmental years? Would you try suggest simplifying their game to try to hit a lower, uh, lower ceiling, lower but more attainable ceiling, rather than just swinging and missing as a prospect? Now, as yeah, I'm sure you're going to say, it goes on a case-by-case basis, but on a recent show with Mitch Brown, we were talking about how Dawson Mercer is such a fascinating young player to me because last year he makes the jump from major junior to the NHL and he kept messing up. And the Devils, to their credit, did a good job of still feeding him regular minutes. It was easier because they weren't winning, so it wasn't a matter of, okay, we got to get him out of here because he's costing us games. It didn't matter. I wonder how they would have acted if that happened this year. But I thought it was very productive for him because it was stuff that he was doing in major junior where he was easily the best player. He comes into the NHL, and instead of totally dumbing down his game, you could see that he was testing what he could get away with, what he was capable of, and then learning accordingly. And this year, he's toned that down um, and, 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 and been more successful to my eye, especially when they've given him top six minutes. So I'm curious for your take in terms of young players making that jump into the league, how you find that balance between not just immediately making them a role player that's being asked to do the bare minimum, while also, um, you know, not stunting their development because they just keep failing and and eventually either it totally saps their confidence or the coach just gives up on them. So so I'm I'm going to answer your question in in a slightly different way and and you know this answer is addressed to any young player. So whether you're you know playing U14 hockey, whether you're moving up to you know U18 AAA, whether you're playing major junior, whether you're playing pro hockey. There, there's two things that you really got to consider if you want to avoid injuries. Okay, first of all is you have to develop good B scanning habits. So if we're talking about a young player who presumably has good skill and has you know skates well, handles the puck well, shoots well, um, as you start playing against bigger, more physical, more mature players, if you don't have good scanning habits when you when you're not yet in possession of the puck then you're going to find yourself uh, getting hit or getting, you know, putting yourself in bad spots. And obviously that leads to injury because hockey is played with boards around uh, the playing surface. And anytime that you you find yourself in that kind of, you know, 15 to five feet danger zone between, uh, you know, yourself and the boards, uh, if you get hit and, you know, there's contact that you're not anticipating, you can hurt yourself very seriously. So the idea is to identify the threats before you touch the puck, because obviously, uh, before you touch the puck, uh, fewer players are going to actually initiate contact. It, it's that moment when you get the puck that you're under the most danger. The, the other side of um, preventing injuries in, in these key kind of developmental years is uh, you got to find ways to uh, get yourself healthy before you get back into play. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is purely anecdotal, but I see a definite link between something like a foot or an ankle injury and concussions because when you're you know you have a sore foot or a sore ankle and you don't have full range of movement and you're compensating you put yourselves in positions where it's difficult for you to turn a certain way or create separation or uh you know absorb contact effectively and then that's when you know if there's a big contact 
you can put yourself in a really bad spot and all of a sudden, you know, what was a, a sore foot or ankle that you could have rested for a week, now you're out for the season because you just had a concussion. So for any, um, so, br so bring it back to, you know, how NHL teams handle these young players. I, I think these two aspects have to be top of mind whenever you're trying to bring players up from junior or college into uh, a pro schedule because one of the, the, the challenges is uh, all of a sudden you're playing, you know, whether it's 72 or 82 games a season, and there's a lot more pressure for a good young player to be in the lineup, to be available all the time. And certainly players themselves, uh, they will take chances and take risks with their long-term well-being, uh, even if they're not 100%. So yeah. so I think if you're a young player, you, you have to have, uh, you have to go into this process knowing, um, you know, the difference between uh, ready and not ready to play and then also as a team as well you you have to think long term as opposed to you know maybe if we sit this guy for a week he'll be fine but if we press him into action maybe something happens and he's going to be out for the foreseeable future with maybe long-term consequences yeah no i think that's really well said compensation is a real thing in terms of leaving yourself vulnerable to future injuries even if it's unrelated to the initial one and the nhl has a real issue i think i mean it's a good thing that it's so competitive right it's the best best pro hockey league in the world and and um if you aren't playing up up to snuff you're gonna lose your spot and so what that leads to is this kind of environment where especially for young players i think they want to prove that they can play play hurt and play through injury and show that they're reliable and they'll be out there and certainly you know, you have to know your own body and, and they're the only ones that they can, they can say truthfully, whether it's just something that, all right, I'm a little bit hurt, a little bit sore, but it's not detrimental. Or if it's something that they're trying to kind of withhold, but is, is really leaving them vulnerable. And so I think creating an environment as a team and with your culture that allows players or, or has the training staff in place to sometimes save them from themselves, I think is, is an underrated quality for an successful organization in the NHL. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you can do a lot of good things with your tactics or your player development or, you know, your research and development uh, in terms of, uh, you know, quantitative analysis. But if you if you can't keep your players healthy or if you rush them back too early and you lose them, you know, because you're essentially being greedy, then uh, it, it's very difficult to be a consistent winner in this league. Yep. Okay, let's rattle through a couple of quick ones that I feel like I know what you're going to say, but we'll we'll put them out there just for the listeners. And who knows? You always uh, you always surprise us. Um, Drew asks, "Is quote unquote chemistry between line mates overrated in terms of importance?" Um, I mean, look, like when you put two players two players that really know the game and can really play the game together, you're going to see good things, like. Uh, obviously, we haven't seen uh, Team Canada or international best-on-best -best hockey for a long time. But anytime that there is best-on-best -best hockey, even if these guys have never played with each other, uh, you, you see Moe as a magic. So, so I think chemistry is maybe overrated in the sense that you don't need a, a passer, a shooter, and a grinder on every line. Like, you don't need that necessarily complementary skill set. But, like, you put three guys with game on the same four line or you put two guys with game on the same D pair, like they're going to maybe learn to work with each other at first and get to know each other. But after they're comfortable and they trust each other, like you're going to see good things like good players 
make for good chemistry. Mm -hmm. Yep. I agree with that. And also I think sometimes it can, it can be used as a bit of a cop-out for, for coaches where they get sort of set in their ways or comfortable with a certain lineup combination. And so it's like, all right, well, we're going to stick with it. And you could easily make the argument, like who would have thought that putting Rupe Hintz, Jason Roberts, and Joe Pavelski together would lead to like the coolest forward line in the entire league. And then all of a sudden you put them together and right out of the gate, they have immediate chemistry and are the best, one of the best lines in the league. And it's like, that's kind of random, but like they're good players. So it makes sense. But if you had never tried it, you wouldn't have known. Yeah. And, and I think again, like going back to, uh, that, that slight dig you took at me, I, I think coaches do sometimes, uh, mistake comfort and familiarity with effectiveness. So, so certainly I, I, I think that's a thing. Uh, and, but you know, it's, you, you do what you can. Yes, definitely. Um, well, Wendy asks, why do so many coaches hate playing rookies in favor of slower, untalented players? Again, it's, yeah, it's it, like, and, and it's not just a thing that's limited to coaches coaching the NHL or, or any other league. It's, you know, if you're a, a paper, if you're, you know, if you're a company buying paper, like you're going with the company that you've always done business with, even though maybe there's a better company that's offering better products at a lower price. Well, you just don't know them, right? Like it's like people are creatures of, of habit and comfort. And I think it's just a, what we see in sports is just a, a manifestation of, of our, our human nature. And, you know, anytime you complain that your local team's coach is, you know, playing older players and, and not trying enough things, think about your own life. Think about the decisions that you make on a daily basis. How many of them are driven by comfort and familiar, familiarity and habit? And how many of them are really the best decisions that you could be making? I think it's, it's something that like, whenever I see that, I, I tend to look inwards first and it, it is what it is, you know? Well, I agree with you, especially when thinking and reflecting on my own life here. But I think this is also why it's so important for NHL teams to branch out and consider hiring different coaches and not just recycling one of 35 guys from, from the pool that has already worked for seven other teams and shown that it, it hasn't been working recently and you hire them because someone in your organization knows them or you're familiar with their name. I think that certainly there's that human element and it's tough to fight that, which is why bringing in a fresh set of eyes, a different thinker from Europe or from a different like field entirely, not necessarily be the coach, but for your front office can provide such immense value to you because all of a sudden they might come in with that similar issue of doing things kind of their own way over and over again, but that might be entirely different from the way everyone else in your organization has been doing it this entire time. Yeah. So, so it's just a matter of, you know, knowing your limitations, reflecting, you know, base your decisions on, on facts, uh, being rigorous in, in collecting information and, and interpreting information. And, uh, you know, I think it's always getting better. But but these are good reminders for us as people, regardless, you know, whether we're players, coaches, whether we work in other industries, uh, th there's always a way to do things better if if we're self-critical and, and if we do things uh, with a clear mind. Yep. Okay, one final one, which I think is, is interesting. Carter Rubin 
asks or says, the Kings have a deep forward group, but less top-end talent on the best teams. How can they use that as a strength when matching up against the competition? So if you have a team, kind of going back to our initial question, right? You have a lot of depth, you have a lot of league average guys, but you don't have any anchors, you don't have any major drags on your performance as well. I think in the regular season in particular, you can really leverage that to your advantage when you're playing teams that are playing coming into town, playing a third third game in four nights off a of back-to-back that are top-heavy. All of a sudden, you're going to clearly have a rest advantage. How do you, as a coach, though, how do you leverage going into a matchup against a team where you feel like you have the depth advantage, but they have the clear, you know, better top line or top defense pair? Well, you you just try to roll your lines and play at a high tempo to, to tire the other team out. It's difficult because if you look at teams that have won the Stanley Cup recently, these are teams that have an ex- an incredibly strong, you know, first wave. So it's three fours and, and two Ds. Like if you, if you look at Colorado, like very strong at the top of the lineup. If you look at Tampa, very strong at the top of the lineup. Even if you look at St. Louis, like they had. You know, they have some really strong, you know, top-line players, uh, whether it's on Ford or on D, uh, Pittsburgh, Chicago, you know, L.A., when they were winning the Cup, they, they were able to put out, you know, they had a great top six and, and great, you know, great top four on D. So I think, you know, for teams like L.A. or, or Seattle, uh, during the regular season, you can get a lot of wins by outgrinding the other, the other team and surpassing their energy and their work rate. In the playoffs, I think it's more difficult because players are, you know, they're really letting it all hang out. They're really emptying the tank. And I think it just comes down to who has the best five-man unit. Um, So I think the priority is somehow to to find a way to trade that depth for maybe a little bit more top-end strength. Uh, We'll see what LA does. But I think from a a medium to long-term planning, uh, it certainly, it would be a priority for them to get better at the top of the lineup and maybe sacrifice a little depth and also not overvalue their own depth players and lock mm-hmm. them up for too much term and, and and too much cap hit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, it's interesting. Like if you get into a playoff setting, right, especially if you have home ice, I do think it provides you with interesting opportunities to to get into the matchup game. And if, if you really are comfortable with, let's say, your middle six or you're not just purely a top-line team, all of a sudden that should theoretically, yes, when you're playing a Colorado or a Tampa Bay, it'll be trickier to pull that off. But against your regular playoff team, your average playoff team, you would think in theory there's going to be opportunities for you over the course of a game to get advantageous situations where all of a sudden, oh, your line, which might be your third line, but probably could be a second line, is going to have the leg up over whatever the equivalent of the other team is. And then it's it comes down to basically trying to win those minutes, I think, acknowledging that once their top line is out there, you're going to be kind of hanging on for dear life. Yeah, maybe LA can really use a Timo Meyer, something like that, right? Like somebody who can really kind of put their top six over over the over the top and, and then maybe sacrifice whether it's prospects or picks or something like that, some futures. Because uh, I like looking at them, I, I think that's what they need. They do. Yeah, and I think they're in a good position to, to pick pick what they're going to want to do here in the next couple of years and 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 facilitate it, right? They they kind of called their shot with Kevin Fiala, and I think that was smart. He's been awesome for them, and I think there's going to be a few more moves like that down the line, and if they nail them, they're going to be in a pretty good spot. So 
certainly something to watch for. All right, Jack, this was a blast. Uh, thank you to the listeners for sending in all the questions and giving us some stuff to to chew on and bounce around. I'll let you plug some stuff on the way out here. What do you what do you want to promote from where people can check you out or what you've been working on? Okay, so I, I think at this point, you, you guys know where to find me on Twitter. But one thing I like to plug today is I offer an analytics uh, for hockey coaches video course on my Gumroad page, which you can find at jhanhky.gumroad.com. And this is like, a, it's a, it's a two hour video course divided into 10, 20 minute segments. And this is uh, a course designed for coaches at the minor hockey, junior, or even pro level or looking to start tracking stats or using analytics in, in a very common sense way, uh, w- which I've discussed a little bit earlier in this podcast. Uh, at the very end, once you get through the content, you can set up a 30-minute call with me. I've talked to minor hockey coaches, you know, junior coaches, uh, college coaches, and pro coaches, and, and help them kind of just find uh, better ways to use quantitative analysis in their jobs. And, and I think if you're someone who works in hockey full-time, uh, it could be a great valley for you. Love it. All right, man. This is a blast. All I got to promote, aside from the usual, uh, please go give us five stars. If you enjoy the show, is uh, go to EP Ringside and check out um, my upcoming piece on, on Keandre Miller, who is a player that I've, I'm incredibly fascinated with, and I've been spending countless hours deep diving his video and, and breaking that down. So I've got a full write-up on that there, and I recommend people check that out. I think it's going to go up Wednesday morning. Otherwise, that's it. We're going to be back soon with more of the PDO cast here. So in the meantime, thank you for listening to us here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.